Hi, this is Steve Englehart, and you're listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 52 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. I am your host, Rick Verbanis, and as always, I am joined by the best gosh darn co-host out there. That's Mr. Bob Lucius. Bob. Bobby. Bobby De Niro. How's it going? <laughs> it's going great, Rick. It's going good. How could it not be going this tonight? This interview, this podcast, Rick. I have we we have been waiting for this. That's true. We have, we're all a tither, uh, being able to talk to one of our favorite cap writers and comic writers of all time, Mr. Steve Englehart. But Bob, you you just glossed right over uh, Bobby De Niro. <laughs> uh, Do you ever get called that ever? Uh, I have never gotten called. Although this week I had one of my students uh, say that I look like a cross, and I didn't know how to take this. Uh, my wife, actually, and I'll let you know what she said in a second to clarify this for me. But one of my students said that I look like a cross between Will Forte and George Clooney. And my wife said, so she said, you look like a homely George Clooney. <laughs> oh, that's I like, yeah, I think that's what she meant. Yeah. So, yeah. But no, uh, bo- no Bobby De Niro. OK, no. well, yeah. see, the, the reason I, I went with Bobby De Niro, because. You know, I don't know. He's a, a well-versed actor, right? I mean, he's mm-hmm. been in many mov- yeah. movies over the last 50 years. It's about one or two, yeah. Yeah, but you know yeah. what? One of his earliest big starts was, you know what movie it was? Uh, it wasn't Captain America. No. So um, was it the Uber driver? I'm going to make him an offer. Oh, I yeah. can't refuse. <laughs> oh, that was, you know what? I Now you, you have proven your New Jersey chops. That right there. Right. Yeah. What movie am I talking about, Bob? That, that was uh, that was The Godfather. Right. And yeah, what part year one. did The Godfather come out? Was it 1974? 1972. 1972. Right. And when did Steve Englehart start his Captain yeah. America career? You know, it's like it, it's like working with a maestro. <laughs> <laughs> the way that you just you sort of just weave and pull all these strings and like, poof, it all makes sense all of a sudden. It all comes full circle, doesn't it? It does. Man? It's beautiful. It's yeah. a beautiful thing. You're a beautiful mind. Uh, oh, well, at least I got <laughs> that going for me. Um, so <laughs> as I have a face for radio, right? Um, so the the thing about uh, 1972, right? So we are going to be talking with Steve Englehart today. Um, that was... When he started writing comics, uh, and uh, we'll we'll get into a little bit here uh, of what his career started off with, but but yeah, he uh, he jumped from um, Amazing Adventures to uh, the Defenders of Captain America right away, uh, both with Sal Buscema, and so uh, yeah yeah we're 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 taking a, as you like to say a trip in the wayback machine. You know, I don't know. Think we need to, to to talk much more about this. Let's, uh, you know, everybody wants to hear from Steve Ungar. They want to hear from us. Let's get to the interview. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For many of our listeners, they grew up reading comics in the 1970s and 1980s, and in doing so, were treated to amazing stories by Steve Englehart. While writing classic runs on series like The Avengers, The Defenders, Doctor Strange, and, and other Marvel in the early 1970s, he created such memorable characters as Star-Lord, uh, Mantis, and, and Shang-Chi, Master of the Kung Fu. He redefined characters like Valkyrie and, and turning teen romance character Patsy Walker into Hellcat. Uh, he also spent several years writing for DC Comics, Valiant, Malibu, uh, as well as novels, children's books, games, film, and TV. However, for many of our listeners, the stories from Steve Englehart's run on Captain America from 1972 to 1975 are what highlight their favorite cap stories of all time. So Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. That's a, that's a nice introduction. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you. And, and there's so much to discuss uh, about your 30 some issues on Captain America. So let's start with what brought you to the series. Uh, you, you got a break from Marvel editor, Roy Thomas, uh, after being an art assistant for Neil Adams and uh, your first credited Marvel hero story was in Amazing Adventures, Volume 2. Uh, was, I think it was issues 12 through 17, where, where the X-Men's Beast was given his blue fur. Uh, th then you were assigned to launch the Defenders with Sal Buscema. And shortly thereafter, this brings us to your third Marvel hero series, Captain America. Oh yeah. Well, we got to go, we got to go back to the beginning then. So I, I remember reading an interview um, that you did with Zach Smith and, and Sal uh, in, uh, I think it was back issue number 20. And in, in that interview, you were reflecting back on uh, your start with the Captain America title, um, stating that at the time that Captain America, right before you took over was uh, clearly the book with the least reason for existence. Uh, in fact, shortly before you picked up Cap, sales were, were fading uh, pretty drastically, and the book was having a tough time finding an audience. Um, in fact, some letter writers in the, in the Rap with Cap section had even gone as far as to suggest that it might be time to retire the book. So um, what do you think was lacking in the book at the time? And was it a bit daunting to pick up the title um, at a time when it seemed like it was in a death spiral? Well, I'll answer those in reverse order, I guess. Um, and I would, I would go all the way back even before reverse order to say I got Defenders with Sal Buscema and Captain America with Sal Buscema simultaneously. They were both given to me, you know, after the beast. Um, the problem was, and this is what I identified so I can say, um, they had been billing him as the living legend of World War II. And shuttling back and forth between World War II stories and, and current stories. And he, the problem was nobody wanted the living legend of World War II. Um, it was Vietnam War time. 
your basic comic book audience was a prime draft age um, and right. really wasn't interested in a character who was, who was a cheerleader for a war, for American war. Um, it seems obvious now in retrospect, but at the time, nobody had figured that out. And, and so when, let's get to your first question, when, they, when Roy offered me you know, told me that I was going to be doing Captain America and the Defenders. Um, I was not daunted because this is my big break, right? I mean, I'm, that's what I'm there for, and you want that that kind of stuff. Um, but of course, then I did have to do something with it, and um, you know, I went home that night. I had, I was a total fan. I had read all the Marvel books and all the DC books and all the Gold Key books and all the Charlton books and, and all that stuff. Um, so I knew, you know, I, I'd been reading Captain America. I understood Captain America. But I sat there and I started just going back through the issues, looking for plot points or, you know, things. And it just came to me that, like, if I were Captain America, who would I be? You know, I mean, if not you know, if Steve Rogers actually existed, who would he be? And and I could not reconcile the character that seemed to me to be in front of me with this living legend of World War II stuff. I mean, the idea that he was old and regenerated and all this, none of that had anything to do with Marvel Comics at the time. So I came up with the idea that he instead stood for American ideals, that, you know, the ideals are theoretically eternal, so it's not tied to any specific thing that America is doing at that particular time. It's about the stuff they taught us in school about, you know, truth, justice, and the American way to steal from some other hero. Um, that was my great revelation. And that was, you know, and so I did, you know, Roy had said to me when he handed me the book, he said, an idea you might want to play with is the 50s Captain America because we published it, but it doesn't fit our time frame anymore. And so between those two ideas, I came up with the idea of this is a way to show that he's not that guy. And, and that guy was a commie hater, um, as I indicated, was a racist. You know, I mean, all this different stuff. That's not the guy anymore. And so the first four issues was a you know, was one story in which I kind of re-established Captain America. Um, and as it turned out, that was the right thing to do. And then, you know, sales took off and then it went from being, as you say, close to being put down to, um, you know, to Marvel's number one book, which then gave me a career, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, everything that happened to me afterwards pretty much comes from, you know, what I figured out to do on Captain America. Um, so that's really, um, you know, interesting. In fact, that you decided to pull him from his connection to World War II and talk more about America's ideals, right? right? And in yeah. this first story arc that you did, which was a brilliant retcon explanation of how, if Steve was frozen all this time, 
who who was playing Captain America and Bucky uh, after World War II, and um, you know I I know it's a, it was an, a question that Roy Thomas asked you, but you you delivered uh, you know exceptionally brilliant answer to that, and but at the same time you you created this. Um, by showing the dichotomy of that period and, you know, Steve Rogers and his mentality, um, it's, it's not stuck in a period because quite frankly, they were both from the same time period, right? It was more from, you know, Steve Rogers being a, a different type of character. And, and you created this spoil for, for Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson. I'm curious, you, you mentioned the sales went up, right? That's, that's, uh, it, obviously, it showed that it, it, it made a lot of um, interest. But was there ever any kind of negative feedback? Because um, occasionally, uh, when the topic comes up in conversation on our Facebook page, so we have many fans that are um, Golden Age comic fans. They sometimes get annoyed that the stories in the 50s are not supposed to be the real Steve Rogers, as they were written at the time originally you know, supposed to be. So, you know, did you get any feedback like that at that time? And, and, and if so, what do you say to those fans? No, I didn't. Um, I mean, Marvel in those days, this was pre-Twitter, right? I mean, right. You know, yeah. if you wanted to comment, you wrote a letter and you put a stamp on it and you took it to the mailbox and maybe you would see it in print three months later um, uh, if it got chosen to be in the letters column. Um, I'm sure that had something to do with it. I mean, definitely everybody started, you know, when Twitter first appeared, people pointed out the rise of internet trolls and, and, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So really, and Marvel was extremely popular amongst the people who were reading comics in those days. I mean, so there really wasn't much negativity in the, in the entire gestalt of the thing. Um, there, in fact, there was like one or two guys over the years who would sort of be the trolls. I mean, they would write in every month and say, that was the worst book ever. I can't, <laughs> you know, but it was the same guy every month. And, and, you right. know, and everybody would go, yeah, that's that guy. Um, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you didn't get a lot of negative feedback. And so, I mean, but I guess you did in terms of sales, if people weren't happy, they weren't buying the book. Sure. But they weren't, you know, they weren't coming as far as the 50s thing goes, no, I don't, I don't know that, I mean, Golden Age fans, I don't know what you call the 50s, that's sort of in between, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I hear what they're saying, but I, there, was, there wasn't a large contingent of people who were really, you know, wedded to the 50s Captain America. I mean, he only appeared for like four issues, right? Right. And then a couple couple more in the young men or whatever. I mean, you know, there were there were probably no more than eight stories about these guys. Um and it had Johnny Romita artwork, you know, I mean it was like mm -hmm. okay, cool. But the stories were just anti communist, you know, the Red Skull was now a communist. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean it was like, yeah, okay. I don't think anybody well, I just said there are some people, but I mean most people didn't find that to be canon or, you know, anything that, that they were very wedded to, at least in terms of, you know, feedback that we got at the time. 
um, people were people were more excited about the fact that okay, there were these stories, and now we've tied them into the overall Marvel timeline, which is what everybody was was interested in. I know um, I know Ed Brubaker has said that uh, issue one fifty six in particular was the first Captain America book he ever bought. Uh, and to this day, he's still um, that 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 book uh, has a lot of uh, sentimental and nostalgic uh, value for him. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, he went on uh, in, in, uh, in subsequent years to use William Burnside, the, the cap of the 1950s, as we know him now, uh, in two really great um, story arcs. The, uh, the Man Who Bought America, which was in, uh, in volume six. And then the Two Americas storyline, where uh, Burnside puts back on the cap uniform and goes toe to toe with Bucky. You're Two- saying that Ed, that Ed did that? I didn't do. That. Yeah, no, Ed did that. Ed did that uh, because uh, because you know, and I think largely because those those that story arc that you wrote was so meaningful uh, and, and sentimental to him. And I wondered if if uh, have you followed any of the developments how how the cap of the 1950s has been used in uh, subsequent decades. Uh, how that story has been fleshed out in any way? No, um, I, you know, I'm basically, and I've talked to other writers about this too, and I think most of them are in agreement with this. When you write a series, well, I'll just talk about me, but when I write a series, um, obviously I have to figure out if I were Captain America, who would I be? And so when I get done with it, it's up to the next guy to figure out if he were Captain America, who would he be? But that's not the guy that I'm, mm-hmm. that I think he should be, right? I mean, I, the people didn't veer off radically or any of this kind of stuff. But um, I mean, I followed uh, Mark Grunewald stuff after, you know, after I got off. Um, but, you know, over time, I didn't, I didn't really, as, as writers kept changing, uh, I didn't really stick around. I mean, I, everybody, you know, I know Ed's good, right? But I mean, I, I did not um, read that. And and then I would say, people always ask, what are you reading now? And I, you know, I, I will just jump to that. I got out of comics like 2005 and started writing novels. And so I just started reading. I mean, I have read novels, but I was, I just immersed myself in novels and, and really sort of cut the cord on comics. So I'm, I'm extremely ignorant, (laughs) Okay, but you know, what's gone on certainly in the last 15 years. And then, you know, before that, um, so, you know, when I, when people would say, oh, you know, it's, it's really good now, Captain America or any of those books, you know, somebody's doing a really good job with it. I was glad to hear that because I like the characters. Right. But I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the, as I said, before I got there, I read everything. But after I left, I read nothing. So. <laughs> well, you know, it must be, though, um, I guess, you know, it, it must be touching in a way that the fact that something that you introduced in your very first story arc has taken a life of its own, right? That it's just grown with these other writers and and, and gone on. So, Well, um, and even in the movies, I mean, that's the, the, the guy who stands for American ideals, right? That's Chris Evans, right? That's... Right. That's, I mean, it was just, just me sort of sitting there trying to figure out what to do with this character, and then it turned out to be the default. After that, I mean, I get you're right. Yeah, yeah. The standard, really, if you if you really think about it, the standard. 
So I, I have a question about something that didn't last very long. And um, so right after this story arc uh, in issue 159, Steve gets enhanced strength right. due to a, a reaction to like a venom antidote with the super soldier serum. Right. Was this something you wanted to bring into the story or was it like an editorial direction? And I ask because it eventually went away after several issues and it, and it felt like it wasn't meant to last. Right. It was an editorial thing. And, and that was a period right in there was the time. I mean, we'd already taken the beast and given him gray fur and then changed it to blue fur. Uh, Prince Namor went from his standard look to wearing black leather there was a period in there when people editorial was looking at things and going, well, you know, what could we do, you know, to enhance this character? And again, that was 159. I started in 153. So, you know, within a few issues of that, it had become Marvel's number one book. A few issues after that, at least, mm -hmm. it had gotten to that point. So, I mean, they came to me and said, up his power, give him more power so we can do more stuff. And I put it in there, but I basically sort of forgot about it. <laughs> and then, you know, other people, it's, you know, Prince Namor went back to being pink. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it was like, there were a number of those things. I guess, you know, the Beast kind of held on to his changes, but um I mean, it was supposed to be real, but it never really felt real to me. And I, I really did just sort of like let it slide. And then after a while, oh, it hasn't been done in a year. Well, I guess it didn't, you know, right. it wasn't a thing. Um, I did, you know, I mean, I, at that point, I'm six months into my quote unquote career. So it's like, you know, when editorial says do this, I'm not going to say I'm not doing it, right. you know. I, 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 I did do it, but um, it never did feel right to me. I mean, I like Cap as, as, I mean, he's got superpowers, yeah, but he's still basically Steve Rogers' part. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not defined by his powers, really. And, and um, I mean, he really is more defined by, by America's ideals than he is by his powers, in my opinion. So power change was just, it, I just, it just sort of slid out of my brain and slid off the table. And then, and, and, and to answer your previous question, I mean, I don't recall people writing in and going, I want a stronger Captain America. Right. Speaking of uh, sort of interesting sort of uh, changes or, uh, you know, bringing back some characters that, and using them in different ways, in issues 161 and 62, you, you brought back uh, two characters, Peggy Carter and Dr. Faustus, mm -hmm. uh, both of which went on to play huge roles uh, in, in, uh, in the Cap Mythos. And again, used extensively by Ed Brubaker in, in volume six. And um, can you touch on why uh, you, you, you sort of honed in on those characters and brought them forward and used them? Uh, and what maybe what the thought process was there? Well, Dr. Faustus is just a supervillain. I mean, you know, I got to have a supervillain every month. And, and I don't think I was doing, you know, I didn't have any spe specific brief 
for him as opposed to somebody else. It's just like, this is a good looking supervillain and I can do something with it. But Peggy Carter, I, you know, that was the thing that now that he was not really connected to World War II, I, of course, thought, let's connect him to World War II. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, uh, and I'm always, you know, I, I plot my stories from character. Um, there's been discussion of this over the years. Other people do it differently. But I, I always start with, like, where is the character going with this issue? And then I build the story around that, um, you know, to make sure that happens. Um, and so, you know, Peggy Carter sort of coming out of the past seemed like, a, you know, it would be a good time for a psychologist to be involved in this whole thing. So that's how Dr. Faust just got there. But I, Captain have, he had the Falcon and he had, and he had, um, Sharon Carter. Um, but that was kind of it for his uh, supporting cast. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, I wanted to expand the supporting cast. So I thought, okay, Sharon's sister, who was in love with him in the 40s, that all sounds like good, you know, soap opera stuff. Um, later on, Gabe um, came in, right? I mean, I was just trying to you know, if you're writing the Avengers, you've got lots of people to write about. If you're writing a single character, you've got to build up a supporting cast. Or, you know, or who's he going to talk to? What's he going to do? And I, you know, and I was trying to make this Falcon. I mean, again, the Falcon, he had his name on the cover. He ought to be treated as, as more of an equal, except it's Captain America. So it's like nobody's equal to him per se. But I was building up the Falcon and, and his supporting cast. Um, Layla and and uh, the the criminal boss whose name escapes me. Um, so I, you know, I just was getting more toys to play with, right? More things to do. Well, but know, then another... Peggy Carter obviously has turned out to be uh, far more than you know than she was intended to be back in those days. Right. Yeah, they they they've certainly taken that character and run with her. Um... So it's interesting. And another character you created shortly thereafter, I think it was issue 163, you introduced uh, Dave Cox. Right. And uh, who is a, a wounded uh, Vietnam War veteran. Uh, he lost an arm in the war and he became a, um, a, a conscientious objector uh, that renounced violence. Um, and this this was just a few years after you were honorably discharged from the army for being a conscientious objector. Um, was this a way for you to kind of discuss your thoughts on Vietnam and, and maybe violence in general? Yeah, very much so. Um, I had, you know, I'd been in the army, um, got out of the army as a conscientious objector. Um, and now I was writing battle scenes in, <laughs> in every book, which never was a problem for me in that it's, it was all fantasy battle scenes. You know, nobody was actually dying. Um, and in comics, nobody ever actually dies. They all come back, uh, except maybe for Captain Marvel, you know. Um, and so, but I just, the whole, the Vietnam War was still going on. And 
Yeah, I mean, basically what you said. I, you know, I, I wanted to introduce a conscientious objector character to kind of show who such a person might be. Dave Cox is not me per se, but I mean, we shared similar beliefs in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, And then since Captain America wasn't the living legend of World War II, he was the spirit of America. It was not, he didn't have to get into a, a, you know, a conflict with a conscientious objector. He could accept that guy for who he was. Um, And again, that, so that, led to interesting stories right and not only did he accept him he defended him mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah which was my uh, cap, you know my cap was basically he was a new deal democrat you know i mean he was he was all for fdr it was all that 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 america is a great place and we're going to do great things impulse from the 40s um and so New Deal Democrat or 70s Democrat, you know, I never specified, you know, I never, I didn't get into the politics of the whole thing, but I mean, that was the, that was the mentality. He was a liberal, you know, I mean, he was, it wasn't a problem for him to accept people who weren't like him or didn't believe the same thing he did. Um, that's who, that's who my guy was. Yeah. No, he certainly had that that empathy about him, which is a, a, a characteristic of Steve Rogers that uh, I've always appreciated. And a characteristic of the America that we're supposed to be living in, right? I mean, that's the America that we're told about. We're in tough times at the moment, but I mean, you know, that was, we were in tough times in the 70s. Um, so, you know, a guy who, the rise above that was was worthwhile character. Another, I mean, obviously a central character is Falcon, right? Sam Wilson. And um, and I think a lot of folks that uh, maybe have been reading about the Falcon over the last 40 years ago, just assume that he's always had wings and could fly. And unless you read the character from the late 60s and early 70s, you'd be surprised that he initially got around with uh, grappling hooks uh, and just would swing through town. Um, and that is until you had Black Panther create glider wings for him. And so can you tell us a little bit about how that decision came about? Well, I just, you know, when Stan created uh, Falcon, he was, you know, he was very definitely wanting to be relevant. He wanted to, you know, have a Black character. Um, and, and again, that was the time when Captain America wasn't doing very well. So let's shake it up. Let's see what we can do. So I, but I don't know that, you know, you can't ask him anymore. For years and years and years, you could ask, but now you can't ask. I, you know, he wanted somebody who could be, uh, obviously couldn't be more powerful than Captain America, but he shouldn't be particularly less powerful than Captain America. So I think the grappling hooks kind of, you know, he's a costumed athlete. That's what he does. But his name was the Falcon. And as, and as, as I was progressing through my run on it, um, I thought, Cap, you know, given him superpowers, but they faded away. But even so, he was just looming larger. Cap had become a major Marvel character at that point. And so I thought that his sidekick ought to have 
you know, more power of his own. Mm-hmm. Um, having the Black Panther um, make the wings. Well, Wakanda's got that kind of technology, yeah. that, you know, as yeah. we all know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I wanted him to be able to fly. It just, you know, better visuals, better ability to do things yeah rather than have to climb up the side of buildings which didn't make any sense really if you're the falcon right yeah (laughs) right (laughs) something missing right yeah Yeah. Uh. all right so as we enter 1974 um so the the nation's been been going through a a crisis with the with the watergate scandal Mm. right so uh president nixon um is being investigated for his administration's attempts to uh, to cover up the involvement of the the seventy two break in of the the DNC, and during this time, you are writing about a man who believes in America's highest ideals. So take us through how you developed the secret empire story that ran from uh, issue one seventy to one seventy five. Well, again, Watergate was the main thing on everybody's mind in America. Um, I would point out in those days when they did the investigation in Nixon, there were people on both sides of the aisle who were doing their best to be statesmen about the whole thing. Even even the Republicans who would just assume defend their president, you know, Howard Baker, other people were, were like legitimate statesmen who were there to conduct an inquiry. Also, there were only three television networks, probably four if you count PBS, but there was only ABC, CBS, and NBC. And Watergate hearings were on all of the networks every day. Um, it was so much of America was watching these hearings, watching evidence being given, watching people get tricked up, watching things. It was just an ongoing obsession with Sessions too strong word, but it just everybody was focused on it. And I thought, well, if Captain America is supposed to be living in the real world, that was always the Marvel idea that it's the real world out there. It just made no sense to me that Captain America would ignore it. I mean, you know, any other Marvel hero could have been busy doing whatever it was they were doing, but how could Captain America not react to that? Um, so I decided he had to, and I, you know, and I will say, we had complete creative freedom in those days. I didn't have to run that past editorial. Editorial didn't have anything to say to me about it. The whole thing about Marvel in those days was if you can make it sell and if you can turn it in on time, it, it's your book. Do what you're going to do. And so it was selling. So nobody had any problem with what I was doing. So I didn't have to clear it. I just thought. He had to do something. And so I, you know, I looked at the Watergate story. Um, Nixon with his high-ranking henchman, Haldeman, who became Harderman in the book, you know, you know, and his flunkies. Um, but I also knew that I couldn't just like replicate the Watergate story. For one thing, it wasn't over yet at the time. We didn't know, you know, how it would actually all turn out. And for another thing, um, it's a comic book, right? So, I mean, I got to have the secret empire or somebody um, 
you know, involved in this thing as well. It can't just be a bunch of ad guys in suits um, or the, or, you know, what was his name? Moonstone. Right. Mm-hmm. Moonstone. Yeah. I mean, he was an ad guy in a costume, but um, which was interesting if I may say, because that was an issue that I took off. I was moving from New York to California. And so Steve Gerber, who had been an ad man wrote the first Moonstone stuff and, and, you know, made him an ad man. Right. So then I, that was the character that I sort of had to run with after that. I had never been an ad man, but you know, that's, that's just inside baseball stuff as to how he got to be the way he was. So anyway, I'm, you know, I'm doing this story and, and another thing about comics is that, you know, you can do continued stories, but they can't run on for years. So all in all, as I put all this stuff together and tried to figure out, you know, how to do it, how to comment on Watergate, how to do something that was specifically comic oriented, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it turned into that run. And so as it came to a conclusion, um, I had the head of the secret empire blow his brains out in the Oval Office. That was, I mean, by that time, Nixon was looked like he was pretty clearly going to go down for this, uh, but he hadn't done it yet. Um, so another question people have asked me over the years is, did anybody tell me I couldn't make it Nixon? And no, that was me too. I decided I wasn't going to specify because anybody in America in those days would know exactly what I was talking about and who that was. But making it Nixon blowing his brains out didn't make any sense because Nixon hadn't blown his brains out. You know, so my guy did and, and, um, you know, but I, but the basic impulse was to have Cap involved, you know, I mean, rather than just fight the yellow claw that month, it didn't, it just, that didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I think you said, um, I, I, it might have even been last year, I think it was an interview with the Comics Journal, that one of the aims of, um, of the Secret Empire story arc was, uh, was to explore Cap's character when his ideals came under siege. Yeah. And I think you said, I think you used the word shattered. Um, could, you, could you quote a comment on that a little bit further? Yeah, well, again, I had, I had established this guy as somebody who believed in American ideals so that he wouldn't have to worry about what America was actually doing at any given point in time. And then a year later, what America was doing at any point in time became impossible to ignore. So now this guy who has sort of risen above all this is brought brought back to the bad stuff that America can do. And that you know, and he's the guy, he's the young skinny kid from Brooklyn who volunteered to go, you know, be the super soldier and, and all believed in what he was doing and, and so on and so forth. So I just, I do stories organically. I mean, I said I started from character, which is true, but it's also true that writing a monthly book, I never like said, here's what I'm going to be doing six months from now. It's mm-hmm. like, I just don't think like that. It's like, what's happening now? Where, you know, where did I leave him last time? Where do I want him to go? That's my story. It's not, 
I don't, you know, and, and certainly I would work out arcs sometimes and, you know, have ideas of where things were going to go. But this was just, I wanted, yeah, I was exploring this idealist in a sense, confronted with pure political cynicism and, and criminality. Um, nothing, and you know, nothing in the entire history of Captain America had ever sort of had to confront that before. So it wasn't like I was changing his character, you know, turning him into some, you know, new guy that, that you know, for my benefit. That just seemed to me the way he, he would react. And, and I'm sure we're about to talk about the Nomad out of that. I mean, right. but it was like, you know, each one of those stories just led to the next story. It was I did not go into that thinking, well, here's where it's all going to end up. It was just like, this one leads to this one, leads to this one. And then we came to the end of the Secret Empire. But then what happens after that? No. Right. And, so. and, and we will. Yes, we do. We, we want to talk to you about Nomad, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But before we do, I just you, you were also quoted at the time saying um, you couldn't see the Secret Empire storyline getting published today. Uh, well, why do you think? Well, I said that then. I mean, now I do know, even though I haven't to be fair, read them. I know that Tennessee Coates you know, wrote mm-hmm. Captain America. I know, you know, other people have written stuff. But, you know, to answer your question straight up, I mean, when Trump started doing what Trump was doing, I'm sitting there waiting for Captain America to get involved in that. And he didn't. Um, he did here or there later on. But, in the, but at the time, I thought, you know, you couldn't publish a story like that. Today, yeah. that you know, in corporate... You know, again, I was working for Marvel Comics, which was a self-contained entity. Now, obviously, you're working for Disney, right? Which Mm -hmm. has got a vast structure overseeing the Marvel structure. I mean, um, it's much more, uh, you know, I mean, if you want to do something now, you do have to, like, run it past a series of editors. They can tell you to make changes, all this kind of stuff. Um, so all in all, it didn't seem to me that, that if they weren't doing stuff about Trump, that was because they couldn't do stuff about Trump or, you know, the people who were, who were in charge at the time didn't want to do anything about Trump or whatever. I was, I was unhappy about that. I mean, I just thought my character, you know, uh, would have gotten involved in that. But it wasn't my character. I understood that. Never was my character. And certainly it wasn't, you know, it was up to other people. But I was pleased that, you know, the longer Trump hung around, the more people sort of worked their way toward stories right. involving the, the um, you know, what America was now. Right. Well, right. you know, yeah. that brings us to, you know, the fallout of you know, the the secret empire and and really how this uh, affected Steve Rogers uh, personally on a personal level. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've, you've just, I think you've said before that uh, issue 176 was, um, is a bit of a philosophical meditation. You know, Cap is sort of coming to terms. Steve is, is coming to terms with what happened. 
Uh, he's, he's talking through some of this inner turmoil, turmoil with his superhero colleagues. You know, he's trying to come to a decision about how to move forward after the events of, of what, what happened at the end of the Secret Empire uh, story arc. And this was sort of this. I mean, it was an unusual, if not unprecedented approach to um, to a comic back then. Uh, And I think you've said elsewhere that the storyline was true to who Cap and in particular Steve Rogers was supposed to be. And so it was believable. Why did you feel Uh, this way? Well, again, I mean, that's exactly who I thought he was, Mm -hmm. Um, that he had his ideals had run smack into a wall. Um, He had seen somebody who may have been the president of the United States blow his brains out in the Oval Office. I mean, this was all very heavy stuff for Steve Rogers. Um, And I mean, he was Captain America because he had chosen to be Captain America and, and he had lived being Captain America. And all of a sudden, you know, if you say if you say the words Captain America, but America has taken on a much darker tone, that just, it didn't sit with him as I saw him, right? I mean, all this stuff is what I think the character is. Um, and, you know, so having finished off the Secret Empire, what do I do next? It just seemed to me that he would have a real crisis of conscious, so conscious of conscience over this and you know I didn't feel I really wanted that crisis of conscience to be understood you know to be like this guy in this situation this is what he's going through so I conceived the idea of doing this issue in which he does nothing but stand on the rooftop and people come and talk to him which it's like there's no comic book. There's right, no yeah. Never one like that. Yeah. Right? I mean, that was that was not that was not the way comics were supposed to be done. And I did throw in a few flight fight scenes and, yeah. and well, I mean, you know, but but by and large, that's it. And and it's entirely him talking to other people. And then my conception of who those other people were as to how they would look at it and, mm-hmm. and what they would say to him. And I and I wanted to do that one issue just to really like go through it. Here's like why I'm doing what I'm doing, which happens to turn out to be, I can't be Captain America. And I got, you know, I still feel like a hero. I've still got my powers. I still want to help people, but I can't wear the stars and stripes while doing. Um, Again, you know, this is going places that had never been gone before. Um, but it seemed very right to me, and I had complete freedom to do what seemed right to me. So that's what I do. So that, that's that's great that you had that freedom, right? Because yeah, uh, you know, over over just the last few decades, you mentioned you haven't you know been reading a lot of recent Cap, but you know we've had Captain America series with without Steve Rogers as Cap. We've had recently he was replaced by Sam Wilson. Uh, you know, during the Ed Brubaker run when Steve was was dead, uh, we had the series continue for a couple of years without Steve in it um, and Bucky taking the role. Um, you mentioned you read a little bit of Grunwald, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we had the captain, right, during the late 1980s. However, it was during your run in 1974-75 that Steve 
not be Captain America for a significant period for the very first time. And yeah, I wanted to see, once I decided to go that road, I wanted to see how long I could make that run. How long could I do a Captain America book with no Captain America in it? And the stories, as they say, one led to the other, the other, and so I think it took eight months or something like that. Um, that's how long the story seemed to play out for me. But when I started it, it was like I don't know how long he's gonna, he's not, you know. And I said, I, I think I even said in the comic, maybe not, but I certainly said enough times. I knew he would come back. <laughs> you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't. I, I was I had complete creative freedom, but I was not going to turn it into the Nomad book and leave it there forever. But again, it was Steve Rogers who was the most interesting part of the whole thing to me. And what was, you know, how did he go? But then if he wasn't going to be Captain America, what's the Falcon supposed to do? And don't other people maybe think maybe they can be the Captain America? And so all these things kind of just played out from the situation. Yeah, I, and I think it did. I think it lasted like six or seven issues. Um, and, and so one of our listeners, uh, his name is Grant Ball, uh, he, he asked uh, a question for you. And he said, um, was, there, was there ever any plan to have Steve go as Nomad for, for longer? Because um, overall, it seems like the change to Nomad didn't last as long. And I guess because the people are used to recent times. And, and was there like, uh, did, did Roy say, hey, when, hey, you know, Steve, when, when are you going to bring him back? No, no. Um, there was no editorial interference in those days. And, and I mean, the book was selling great. So obviously what I was doing was, was resonating with people. And so that gave me permission to do it. Um, you know, I mean, um, it could, you know, when I, as I say, when I started, I did not know how long it would run my sense of story. I mean, it's same with the secret empire. I mean, when I started secret empire, I didn't know how long it would run, but my sense of story said, you know, this is all coming to a head. So let's, you know, let's not try to drag it out any farther. And it was the same with the nomad. I mean, you know, I did try all these different things. The Falcon, you know, is, is doing his thing. The other captain America's then we get Roscoe for several issues until Mm -hmm. the red skull kills him. Um, it was, it was, you know, I mean, it just, I didn't feel that it needed to run any longer. And I, I, I'm interested, I may ask, you're saying that these days things like that might go on for years or, or <laughs> so, what were you saying about? Or sometimes, books? like for instance, I mean, just, you know, when, when Ed Brubaker run, uh, Steve died, I think it went a couple of years without him even being in the title. So, but I'm uh, sure that Ed, you know, I mean, I'm saying I have, you know, I haven't read those books. It's probably a great shame that I have not read those books. But I mean, from everything I know about Ed Brubaker, it's, I imagine he was not like dragging it out. He just had that much story to tell, right? Yeah, yeah I think he'd agree with you. Uh, yeah. that, you know, just it kept the stories kept coming to him and just more, uh-huh. more and more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the best stories, right? Yeah. That's the, reveal themselves to yeah. you know yeah. yeah hey speaking of reveal i have to i gotta ask you because um one of my favorite panels was in, in captain america 180 uh well certainly maybe not one of my favorite but certainly one that just a gig, I, I get a giggle every time i think of it and it's it's when nomad trips over his cape 
Yeah. And and I think of it every time my son and I we watch we watch this animated movie The Incredibles because yeah. you know it's like no capes, no no capes because you know it always ends badly. And I was wondering if if, if you wrote that and if when you were writing that in, in 180 if you were trying to play a little bit with the superhero trope a little bit of the capes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people do put on capes cap and never had one, you know. But I just I just thought it it was funny. I mean, I, I've written Batman, who's the master of the cape, and he gets right. along just fine. But, <laughs> but I just thought a guy who'd never had one would find it you know, <laughs> right. tangled up in it or whatever. Um, and so, I, you know, I, that, I think that's pretty much the, the entire extent of it. I mean, Salvi Summa made him look just fine wearing a cape. But I thought, this is a guy who doesn't deal in capes. Right. Um, he's the master of the no cape. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was definitely a joke on my part to, you know, to, to have him trip over the cape. Um, but it was, you know, again, it's part of like, now I'm figuring, you know, who, who am I now? You know, I'm, I'm wearing a different costume. I'm, I'm calling myself a different thing. You know, I mean. So speaking of Sal, Basima, yeah. uh, you know, during this Nomad story, uh, we see your time together with Sal uh, on Cap, at least, come to an end. Yeah. Um, and you were on the series for over like two dozen issues together, uh, yeah. which was really impressive. Right. Yeah, I, well, mean, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, you worked, you worked with Sal in a number of different books. And, you know, it seems to me, and I think, I think Rick would agree that, um, you know, the most memorable runs generally come when to, uh, when the creative team is so in sync the writers the artists are in sync uh and the story and the art complement each other sort of seamlessly um was that your experience with sal absolutely i was i was very very lucky to get sal uh for my first two major superhero books um sal can draw anything and and you know it doesn't do me much good to have complete creative freedom if I'm working with an artist who can't draw stuff. I mean, you know, there are people who can't draw horses or they can't draw hands or they can't, you know. Um, but I never had to send, you know, I, I could think of anything and send it to Sal and Sal would draw it, you know, and not only draw it, but draw it very, you know, really good comics, really good storytelling, you know, all that good stuff. Um, so... Yeah, you know, I, I I say, well, I had complete creative freedom, but I was aided and abetted in this regard by Sal, right? Um, I love working with him. I I always jump in and mention Joe Staten, who was another guy just like that. Joe Staten can draw anything, um, and and did with me several times at Marvel, but most of our stuff was over at DC, but. Um, you know, I've worked with guys who can't really, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not about to even mention any news, but I mean, you know, I've worked with guys who just aren't as good storytellers or their characters, their characters are kind of stiff or, you know, whatever. Comics, so much of comics in those days, all comics in those days, pretty much, with a few exceptions, was they just came to you and they said, you're going to write it, Selby Sun is going to draw it okay, fine. You know, I mean, you didn't, it, it, you didn't think to question it. 
I mean, that's just how comics worked. Um, and so to, to jump to, to a very current reference, Jim Starlin and I came up with the idea for Shang-Chi and we went to Marvel and said, we want to do this book. That was not the norm at all. Um, so again, it was total luck that I was given um, Sal. And, um, you know, eventually I just felt like I had written all the Captain America stories that I wanted to at that time. Earlier on, you know, Sal had gotten to the point where he felt he'd drawn enough Captain America stories. And so he did, you know, he departed during that final nomad sequence which was a shame i mean i really i loved um frank robbins i love frank robbins stuff on the man bat and all that good stuff but he was a totally different artist and and that's weird you know particularly that early because that was still early in my career to switch from a guy that i'd worked with all the time mm-hmm. to another guy um and um you know doesn't seem to have really like caused a lot of readers to leave the book or anything, but I'm sure it was a shock to everybody sure. when Sal, you know, when Sal was changed uh, to Frank Robbins. So you, you, you just mentioned, um, you know, it was time for you to leave the book. Um, so that takes us to your last story arc, right? Which is with the red skull. Um, and it, it seems like, no writer on cap wants to, to leave before telling their red skull tale. No, right. Of course uh, and, and yours was a doozy. Uh, you, you started your run uh, with a retcon of the 1950s cap and Bucky, which is taking a previous story and altering it to answer a question that had been plaguing many readers for years. Uh, and at the same time, build Steve's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, now with your time on cap coming to a close, it's time for Sam Wilson's development. And so you took his intro and origin back in 1969 and you retconned it to be this long-term master plan by the Red Skull. Um, what prompted you to retcon Sam's backstory? Um, basically because I was about to hand the book off. We had found this guy named John Warner who we thought wrote really good stories. And, and um, so the idea was to hand it off to him um parenthetically i will say john did write good stories but he couldn't meet deadlines and so you know it didn't last but at the time i was handing it off and i wanted you know i just felt having gone through the whole secret empire nomad thing bringing it back by way of the red skull i could go back to writing cap fight superheroes but i just felt like i had done this big epic and and just thought i'll go do something else plus they offered me a black and white thor book right around that time and i i thought well that'll be fun and then that book never happened so (laughs) that you know but um i i wanted to give john something that he could hit the ground running to do something with and since I just wrapped up everything about Captain America, it was obviously going to be the Falcon. Um, and so, uh, you know, I thought, well, the Red Skull's got to have a master plan. That's what Red Skulls do. So I came up with this idea of, like, let's retcon the Falcon's origin. Maybe 
because in my mind, I was not saying that he had been, that Snap Wilson was the real guy and that Sam Wilson wasn't. It's the Red Skull who's telling you this stuff and who can believe the Red Skull in the first place. Um, So I thought, cool, if I were coming onto this book, I've got stories to tell here. You know, I mean, what's the Red Skull's real plan? Did he, was the Falcon actually somebody else who'd been turned into this guy, you know? Um, And, you know, going back and look at it, I mean, the original Falcon that Stan created was basically the perfect guy to go hang out with, with Captain America. I mean, he was like, he was perfect for it, which at the time, you know, that's what all retcon and, and continuity is about. I mean, at the time, he was perfect for it because he was designed to, you know, to come into this book and work with Captain America. But I looked back and I said, well, what if he was perfect because it had been manipulated that way? Um, so I, you know, I, I quit, you know, I mean, I left the book and handed it off to John. And then John came and said, well, this whole first half of the next issue is like the history of the Falcon. And you understand that better than I do. So why don't you write that part? And then I'll write, you know, the second half of the book. I'm like, okay. So I came back and, and did, you know, came back. I hadn't really gone very far, but, <laughs> you know, I just, I wrote the first half of, of that book and then we handed it off to John. But then John, you know, wasn't the guy to take it and run with it. And it all just sort of stumbled to a halt. And then, you know, they had to, Tony Isabella, you know, and, and then Marv Wolfman had to kind of like get in there and pull it back together. And by that time, Kirby was coming back. And so they knew they were going to hand it off to Kirby. So they were just trying to like settle the whole thing down and go with it. So it wasn't the ending. I mean, it wasn't where I had envisioned it going after that. Um, if we had handed it off to John and John had been a guy I don't mean to dump on the guy. Some people can meet deadlines and, you know, some people are just faster than all that. I like him. I've seen him now in 50 years, 40 years, but I, you know, John, he was a good guy, but I mean, he did not do what we all thought he was going to do. And then somewhere in there, Kirby said, I want to come back and I want to do Captain America. But if John had been successful at his run, I'm not sure what would have happened. I mean, I don't know that they would have said no to Kirby, but then, you know, so John might've been bounced, whatever he did, you know, that's, that's inside baseball mystery. I don't, I don't know the answer to any of that, but um, um, anyway, that's, you know, I, I wanted to leave it up to John as to what, who the Falcon really was, right. He would be able to decide the way I would, I mean, that would have been how I would have done it. I would have like written stories until I, it led me one place or the other. And that would have been it, you know? So I wanted to give him that option. So that, that that's inside baseball right there. I mean, I, I, that's a fascinating backstory because I mean, you know, here it is 45 years later, right? I mean, when you, people look back on, on that particular story, uh, you know, it, it comes across a little exploitive. It comes across a little stereotypical, uh, you know, uh, for Sam to be a, a hustler and be s- snap. Are you saying that when you, when you suggested that story to, to the next writer and, and basically, well, you know, handing them this 
this beginning uh, and that you know, who can trust the Red Skull. In your mind, were you hoping that John was going to do something specific with it, like show that maybe this this wasn't exactly Snap Wilson? Or, or did you not have a – you were just handing it to him and, and saying, you know, run with it? Yeah, it was – as far as I was concerned, it was going to be his. And I didn't want to be stifling his creativity, right, as to what was going to go on. I mean, I would think – Having Sam Wilson be sort of a stereotypical hustler is the kind of thing the Red Skull would think of. I mean, that's that would be the Red Skull's mindset. Mm-hmm. But I really wasn't saying that's that's the fake version, and and that Sam Wilson really is Sam Wilson. I I think probably if I had written it it would have end up, ended up with Sam being Sam and mm-hmm. that Snap was, you know, was some creation of a Nazi, you know? It's like, it's what Black people are all like. But I wanted it to be ambiguous enough so that John could go wherever. Because stories sometimes just take you, you know, I mean, I learned that writing Mantis in the Avengers, and I've talked about that a lot, and I won't talk about it a lot here, but I mean, she just sort of revealed herself to me month after month. I didn't really, you know, but that taught me to always let characters do that. I mean, if you say, you know, by God, he definitely is Sam Wilson, then, you know, you're going to be closing off story possibilities while you're, while you're trying to get through it. And you may, you know, and you can explore those possibilities and still have it come out that he is Sam Wilson, you know, or maybe you'll find out that the story is telling you that he really was a criminal back in the day and and that the Red Skull actually did this and it made, you know, it made Captain America better because he had this thing. I mean, that's just all off the top of my head 45 years later, right? But I mean, stories can, stories can go anywhere. Um, And I am totally not a fan of saying, you know, six months from now, I'm going to be doing this because then you just get six months down the line and you're checking off a box, you know, you're not, you're not being creative. And, and, and the whole six months, you're trying to go to that place. I've seen stories like that recently and I'm drawing a blank on what it is, but it, Oh, um, this is a reference that many people probably won't find useful, but for anybody who watched the white Lotus on HBO, I really had the sense that for five, that, that, and this is just me talking, right. But it's, I had the sense that when the writer went in there and he said, here's what this story is going to be about HBO, give me money. And they said, yeah, okay, fine. He then started to write the series and the characters started to develop. And, and I hope somebody has watched White Lotus, so this won't, this won't be dead air here. But, I mean, the characters start to develop, and they start going in different directions. And then all of a sudden, in the last episode, they all kind of like come back to places <laughs> that they didn't really, that's not where they were going. But right. that's where they sort of, that's where he said six months from now, this is what I'm going to be doing. I could be totally wrong. That's just, you know, as a writer, I watch stories and I, and I'm kibitzing all the time, you know, how does this, you know, is this, 
Did I do this? Did, does this work? Does this make sense? But that was just, you know, so all I'm saying is if you try to force characters to go someplace, to be something, it shows, I think, you know, you're not, you're not really writing characters anymore. You're writing action figures that you can get to go someplace. So was he snap or Sam? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> well, you know, we've, uh, we've talked about a number of different storylines here. We talked about the 1950s cap, secret empire, nomad, obviously snap, uh, we haven't talked about some of your other work, uh, including some of the Avengers stories with Cap. But, you know, this, these books hit the rack 50, 45 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and yet still, there are, uh, there are comic readers out there, including the, the two that you're talking with, that uh, remember those stories so clearly and fondly. I mean, they have become, uh, you know, up there among many of the most beloved of the Captain America stories. Um, how does that make you feel? Well, it makes me feel good, certainly. Um, I mean, we were writing for the moment for the audience in 1972 or whatever. I mean, and there were no movies, you know, there were a couple of bad Captain America movies, right? Yeah. And a mediocre Doctor Strange movie and a really bad Fantastic Four cartoon series. I mean, so there was no hint that any of the MCU and stuff was going to happen. Um, I was just trying to write I loved comics and I wanted to write the best comics I could write as I saw them. And I was given the opportunity to do it the way I saw them. Um, the seventies was just, a, you know, it was a good time for comics because everybody had creative freedom and you had Starlin and you had Brunner and you had Don McGregor and you had Steve Gerber and all these people doing what they wanted to do um, to the best of their ability. And, I think we all did it to the best of our ability. We all felt like we love this medium and they've given us all, you know, they've given us the ability to do whatever we want to do. So let's, you know, let's go for it. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I can't argue. I got, I have to admit they were good stories. They were good stories. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) They were great stories. (laughs) You know, but I certainly didn't think, you know, I, I never thought at all that they would be what they are. Yeah. You know? But right. that's another thing about being, you know, somehow or other 45 years did go by. Uh, I mean, that's always amazing to me, too. I don't, I yeah. find it hard to believe. Right, it. yeah. I'm however old I am. But um, at some point, it just solidifies. And so those are the 70s comics, right? There aren't any others. There aren't going to be any other comics coming yeah. out of the 70s. That's history now, right? And so people come along and they go, well, I'm interested in comics. What's there? And then, and then that, that's, I can't be any more articulate than that. Look, I, well, I got to tell you, Steve, I mean, like we, we do this podcast, you know, and we, we, we obviously we interview a creative talent, uh, but you know, sometimes we just review story arcs. And well, I mean, one of the, one of the first ones off the bat, I mean, people want, those story arcs to be reviewed. They want those to be discussed because they're so memorable and they form such important parts of, of the cat mythos over time. And I, and just here's some inside baseball and I don't want to embarrass Rick, but uh, I think, what was it June Rick? I mean, Rick, I've never seen, you know, he, he was geeking out because he, he got his Funko pop nomad figure. 
right? Uh, right? <laughs> you're showing yeah. it off again, putting a picture on Facebook over the weekend. So, you know, we, uh, we're, we're all grown men, but those uh, remain memorable stories for us and meaningful for us. So. Well, I mean, I can only say they were done with sincerity. They, you know, I, I love comics and I just, you know, I had my sense of what made good comics and that's what I wanted to do. One thing about comics that is nice is that things keep getting reprinted so people can, you know, they don't have to go hunt up that stuff necessarily. It's, it just shows up on them every once in a while. And, and <clears throat> that again, I mean, there were fantasy masterpieces and things that would reprint some old Fantastic Four story once a year or something. That also was not anything that we had in our brains but as it turns out, the stuff does get reprinted. And it turns out it continues to sell, so it keeps getting reprinted. So then, you know. And then with the movies, right? I mean, they're very, they're very good about acknowledging where they get the ideas. I mean, then they run with it and do what they want to do with it, right? But they but if they if they've used somebody's story, you're gonna see that name in the special thanks or the, you know, or the created by if that's the case. Um so I'm, you know, I guess I'm thankful that, that people are honorable enough. I mean, you know, to, they, they, they honor stuff honorably, uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, they, they respect the basis for all this. And, and then, they, you know, whatever the MCU does with it, um, you know, we get respect from from those people as well, which is which is not always the case, and that's and that's that's good too. So I mean, I'm just I'm just incredibly lucky. I mean, I I had a I had a facility for this stuff. I was in the right place at the right time, and and then Marvel held up its end of the bargain, mm. you know. So, uh, so one one last Captain America question. Yeah. Uh, so. Are there any unwritten stories about Cap you always wanted to write but never did? No, because I did everything in the moment. And I, you know, um, on occasion, I would have several stories about, like the West Coast Avengers. I had West Coast Avengers stories mm -hmm. in my head that I didn't get to write when they bounced me off that book. Um, um, but in general... You know, I don't, I just sit there every month and figure out what I'm going to, but I had a thing that I called throwing plates in the air where sometimes I'd be writing a story and I'd say, well, that looks like a cool thing to do. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but let's throw that in here now. And in a couple of months, I mean, I'm throwing the plate up in the air and a couple of months that plate is going to have to come down and I'm going to have to catch it and explain what it was that I was doing here. But I'll worry about that when the plate comes down. And that, you know, that really is my, was my if I ever thought ahead, it was kind of like that. It's like, well, let's see what that is, you know, when it actually gets there. I didn't, I didn't have any, you know. And with Captain America, that was one where I, I really, I said, I think I'd like to pull this to a close and, and go. So it wasn't like I had another story um, that I didn't get to do. Well, that's uh, that's a, that must be a very satisfying feeling that you, you've come you've come full circle with your with your character. So, what's what's keeping you busy nowadays? 
Well, the pandemic uh, <laughs> made me, you know, made me write. Um, I wrote. I did. I wanted to do. A, I wanted to do a story about a small town with like twenty ongoing characters, two of whom become superheroes, but you don't know which two they are. Um, and so that meant that every all those twenty people had to have interesting stories in of themselves, and that led me to. to you know, want to do a story in which there were 20 ongoing stories, each of which was interesting in and of itself. And then partway through, you find out which two actually have the extra storyline going on. Mm. And I wrote that. And I discovered that if you want to have 20 ongoing stories, basically every chapter is going to be 60 pages long. And, and I was able to draw it to a close after seven issues each each issue took a day. And so what that means is it's 420 pages long. <laughs> and there's nobody in the world, uh, to my knowledge, who wants to draw 420 pages. <laughs> so, you know, it remains a script. Um, and it's a script I'm really happy with. I mean, I really like the story. I, I satisfied myself yet again. Um, but it was, wasn't until I sort of got to the end that I go, this is never going to be a comic. It's never, you know, it's, it's just going to be for my, you know, my satisfaction and, and, and you know, nobody's going to see it. Um, and then I've done, you know, I've done a few other things that are shorter, um, but I'm mostly, I'm not, well, I was published so many times that I always think about publishing but I'm not like, that's not the point of the exercise, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, I've got, I'm just a writer. I just write. Um, I've got another story, which is, which I'm calling a moon noir, um, which is only four issues and 28 pages per issue. So then I might find an artist for that. Um, if there's an artist listening to this who thinks they'd like to draw a moon noir story, they can contact me. You know, uh, and how can website. fans uh, follow you or, or get in touch with you? Well, I don't do social media. I have no Facebook page. I have no Twitter account, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I'm not a fan. Um, but I have a website. It's just steveenglehart.com. And there's an email link there if anybody wants to get in touch with me there. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us today about your, your time on Captain America. Uh, but as Bob mentioned, you know, your stories have been fondly remembered and reread by Cap fans for decades. And, and it was a, a real treat to, uh, to hear your stories behind the stories. So, so thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that was a fun chat with uh, legendary writer Steve Englehart. Um, I certainly enjoyed hearing the stories behind the stories. I don't know about you, Bob, but uh, it's always fun hearing about uh, how some of our favorite stories, you know, what was the thought process behind them? Yeah, I mean, right, Rick? I mean, we're talking, like I said, right, 50 years ago, these things were on the spinner racks, right? And I mean, that's a half century uh, for those out there that, uh, you know, are math challenged. That's, that's a long time. And yet they're still relevant. They're still loved 
they're still red. I mean, that's, that's an, that's gotta be an amazing feeling to know that the, the things that you've created have, uh, have had such long legs and uh, it's just great hearing a little bit about, you know, the thought process, how those sort of percolated up from the mind and got on the paper. I mean, to me, that was, uh, that was what the interviews are all about. Yeah. Yeah. It must be also like, like we said, surreal, you know, when talking with him about seeing your characters on the big screen. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, heck, you know, I mean, he just, he just went to the Shang Chai, uh, you know, movie premiere character he created. And of course he mentioned guardians of the galaxy because he created star Lord and Mantis. Um, and then, and then, you know, here's a forgotten character from tales of suspense uh that you know he brought back uh in 1973 uh peggy carter and and look how big a character she became you know in the mcu Mm -hmm. so that's got to be surreal just seeing that yeah yeah i mean and, and i mean when it comes to cap i mean i you know we all have our favorites we all have our you know our favorite storylines our favorite creative talents but nobody can argue that uh steve's stamp on Captain America hasn't been enduring uh, and that it was a powerful stamp that shifted much about the character and the way that we view the character um, from his earliest origins and and up through the early silver age made an indelible stamp on the character that uh, endures until today. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, And so um, listen for all our our listeners out there. uh, We'd love to hear your feedback um, on, on this interview. Um, you know, please, you know, post your comments on the Facebook page. Uh, please, uh, you know, leave us a voice message. You know, you you can call in and leave a message uh, to our anchor page. Um, and then, of course, if there's any podcast episodes that uh, you've missed, you can always find them on CaptainAmericaComicBookFans.com. And so, Bob, uh, we're going next episode uh, from the way back machine in today to brand new spanking off of the racks we're going to be covering the united states of captain america number four yes yes I, you know I've, I've been loving this series so far every uh, every review that we've done has uh, has sucked me a little bit further uh into the series and i'm i'm i'm, I'm looking forward to this one yeah yeah it'll be uh it's it's starting to uh to come together so uh be interesting to see where this steer, uh, this the story takes us. Um so so come back for episode 53 where we review United States of Captain America number 4. All right, that will do it. Uh Bob any last thoughts or words? No sirree. All right. Well then uh he's Bob Lucius and I'm Rick Verbonis and you've been listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans podcast. 